Okay, Boker Tov, good morning. I want to thank uh, Ronda Shiva for sponsoring our Amuna class this morning in honor of her granddaughter Ilana Batsheva Shiva becoming a bat mitzvah. Mazel Tov, she have a lot of nachas, a lot of nachas, a lot of simcha, a lot of bracha, and only the best of everything. A few quick announcements and then we'll dive back into Revolbi. I hope everyone uh, comes this Shabbos afternoon. The women's class is being taught by a very, very special speaker, my daughter Atara Gittel Goldberg, who has been preparing diligently. So I hope you'll all be there for her incredible shir and dvar Torah. That's number one. Number two, I hand it out, you have in front of you, and I want to give him credit. His name is Max Spector. I don't know Max Spector. I don't believe I ever met Max Spector. But one day I got in the mail this envelope, ready post, from a Max Spector in Woodmere, New York. At first I thought maybe it had anthrax in it or something. I didn't know what it was. But uh, after I worked up the cards, we opened it up, and there was a beautiful letter from a young man, Max Spector, who listens to our Amun Ashir online. And we went through the series we did about the Mea Brachas, making 100 Brachas every day, and our breakfast where we made signs of each of the Brachas and what we're supposed to think about. And we talked about how when a person interrupts their day 100 times during the day to make a Bracha, they're inviting Hashem into their life. They feel His presence. It calibrates our, our religious, our compass of faith and Midos and so on and so forth. So he on his own, this young man, made up these cards in honor of a speedy recovery for a soldier who was injured in terror attack who still is in need of a recovery, Natana Lilan Ben Shein And you see the front and back of the card have numbers going up to 100. You move the paper clip around the card as you make brachas during the day. On the back, he's got a list of how you get to your 100 brachas based on the davening and the brachas that we say every day. And uh, he sent me, he made up these cards, he put them in an envelope, he wrote a letter, he just said, did it, he was moved, he was inspired on his own, and uh, he was inspired, but I, I don't know if he realizes how much he inspires me, and I hope inspires all of you. So there are plenty of cards, if you want to take more and give it to others, as we make those hundred brachas a day, we should have in mind this soldier who should have a speedy and a painless and a complete refuah shlema, and Max Spector, whoever you are, wherever you are, thank you, you're an amazing young man, if you're not yet married, let me know, and... <laughs> Maybe we have some ideas for you. Okay. Exactly. Let's get, let's get back into the uh, piece that we're studying, Rav Volbi. So we've been going through, Rav Shlomo Volbi has a sefer called Be'emunah, so Yechia, that through Amuna we live, with Amuna we are alive. Without Amuna, a self-centered, egotistical life, we have forfeited life. We're dead even while we're alive. We've given up the purpose of life. But Be'emunah, so if we live a Amuna-centered life, where we realize that there's something greater than ourselves, and life is not about us, but it's about being of service to others. Then be'emunaso, with such an attitude in life, yechia, that's how we are truly alive. So we're on Vad Yud, we're up to the 10th chapter, and the Revolba last week we developed this idea of Hine kel Yeshuasi, Evtach velo Evchad. God, you are my salvation, and therefore Evtach, I put my bitachon, I put my faith and trust in you, velo Evchad, I have nothing to be afraid of. I have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. And we spoke about what is the um, behavior which reveals that we don't have the amuna and bitachon we should, is anger. When a person gets angry, when we lose our cool, when we get bent out of shape, then we don't recognize and we don't realize that everything that happens is meant to be. It's the way it was supposed to be. If you remember last week we spoke about, we take our frustrations and we turn them into a tefillah. 
We got our kids all dressed and we lathered them up in sunscreen and we drove down to Hollywood to go do some fun event. And it turns out it was Memorial Day and we couldn't park and we couldn't participate, we couldn't do. We turned the car away around and we go home. And you know, my sister pointed out to me after the year last week, we don't have to describe the worst. Well, maybe if we would have done it, someone would have died and drowned and it would have been, we don't have to be so dramatic. We just have to be able to accept with faith, we weren't meant to do that activity today. I don't know why, I don't need to conjecture, I don't need to speculate why. All I need to accept is, I wasn't meant to. I wasn't meant to make that flight. I wasn't meant to make a green light. I wasn't meant to, whatever it is in life that we're disappointed or frustrated by, to be able to recognize that I wasn't meant to, this is the way it was meant to be, and to have a sense of scope and a sense of perspective and to recognize. But when a person gets angry and when we bear that grudge and when we harbor that grudge and when we carry that grudge, and the, the, the more intense our anger and the longer our anger carries, the less we recognize that this is what was meant to be. It doesn't mean it was meant to be pleasurable. It doesn't meant to mean it was meant to be joyous. It doesn't mean it was meant to be something we'd want. It could be painful, sometimes unbearably painful, but for whatever reason, it was meant to be. That doesn't mean we don't, we don't hold the other person accountable. Somebody who's hurt us should be held accountable. But as we hold them accountable, in parallel at the same time, we realize for whatever reason, this was meant to be. On Shabbos, I spoke about Bill Buckner, Oliva Shalom, who just passed away last week, who uh, famously in the World Series cost the Red Sox their first championship in uh, 86 years when the ball went between his legs. Inexplicably, he made an error at first base that would have ended the game and given the Red Sox the championship. Instead, the Mets won that game and went on to win the World Series two nights later, and the city of Boston never forgave him. And I spoke about the notion of, con- I'm not making a comment on Boston, you could, you, could extract your, you could extract your own conclusions, just saying that they, uh, they never forgave me. He had to move to Idaho. He had death threats. He had to have a bodyguard. He had to, his whole life. Why? 22-year career as an all-star and a, a National League batting, uh, champ- a, a league batting champion was all out the window. And we do that too, a moment of anger. 22 years, so to say, career, a 22-year relationship with someone, and they make an error. They made a mistake, a millisecond, an error. And all we do is remember the error. We don't remember or focus or think about the 22-year illustrious career and the contributions they've made to us. We have to put things in perspective and have scope and have context in life and to realize what matters and what doesn't matter, to let go of the things that don't matter, not to carry that grudge, not to carry that anger. I didn't even read this email, but someone just sent me as we were beginning class about uh, after the drush, they were very upset at someone who did something and they, they found the strength to let it go, realizing in context and with perspective that it doesn't matter. I mentioned this uh, great book that uh, don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. And he has a great line in there. He says, as you're losing your cool, as you're flaring with anger, as you want to storm out of a room, as you want to bear a grudge, as you want to not talk to somebody for several days, just ask yourself a very simple question. Will this matter one year from now? And if it won't matter a year from now, it doesn't matter that much right now. Let it go. So that was all on Shabbos, but what I add right now is the, the let it go yeah, the let it go is, I was upset about something, you'll have a text me, will this matter a year from now? <laughs> it's very unpleasant to have your drushes used against you, I'll just tell you. It's a very unpleasant experience, but touche, well done. So um, that, was the, that was the strategy for how to avoid anger, but the religious component of it, the amuna component of it, is not just to realize for my own serenity and happiness and, and, and well-being and health, let things go, don't carry them, but my relationship with Hashem from a religious faith-based perspective to realize that whatever happens, it's for a reason. That doesn't mean it's pleasurable, it doesn't mean I want it, it could be unbearably painful, but so when I get angry, when I lose my cool, I've knocked God out of the equation. I've removed Him. I've edged God out, ego. I've knocked Him out. 
And that was Moshe Rabbeinu, Yan Lohemant, and B. Moshe was punished. He couldn't go into Israel after he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock because he did so with a sense of anger. So we are on page Ayan Aleph, the top of page Ayan Aleph 71, continuing with Revolve. Amen. It's very important we don't have a superficial understanding of this episode. Moshe Rabbeinu losing his cool is not like me losing my cool. My kids left the shoes in the middle of the floor, they didn't tuck the chair back into the table, their book bag is all over the living room uh, couch, and I get angry. My anger is unwarranted, it's disproportional, it's... Uh, <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu's anger is Kodesh HaKadoshim. When Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry and frustrated about something, it is an expression of incredible holiness. Haram Chalker, Sayyid Haram Chalker, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the author of Mesilas Hasharam, writes in Mesilas Hasharam, Shevemakam Shetzarach Lichos, Yesh Laharos Kas Haponim. It's very, it's interesting he's quoting the Ramchal because the, the Rambam says this himself. Anger has no place. We've discussed this before. The Rambam and the Ramban both agree that all emotions belong in our chalant, in our chicken soup pot. By some measure. The question is, what measure? I've talked about this countless times. Right? How do you say a characteristic or quality in Hebrew? I'm working on my... Midos, midot. What is a midah? It's a measure. Why are midos called a measure? Because they all belong in the recipe. It depends at what measure. So if I'm making chicken soup, it would be a miracle, but if I was making chicken soup, so is pepper good in chicken soup? The answer is, it depends. If you put in too much pepper, you ruin the chicken soup. If you use no pepper, it has no taste, or salt, whatever spice you want to use. Too much, you ruin it. Too little, it has no taste. You have to have, like the three bears, just the right amount. You have to have just the right amount for it to be good. So when it comes to all of our qualities, every quality can be used, good or bad. It all depends in what measure. Is stubbornness good or bad? Yes. <laughs> it's both. Right? God says, I can't take this incorrigible, miserable people. They're so stubborn. Moshe says, please, you have to forgive them. They're so stubborn. Well, which is it? What Moshe was saying is their stubbornness can be channeled. It can be transformed to be an asset, not a liability. Stubbornness, when, when it's something bad, you won't put on your shoes or you insist on buckling your own car seat. That's, that's infuriating. But stubbornness, when you go off to college and everyone else is losing their religion and you stubbornly are steadfast to your conviction, your religion, stubbornness is a fantastic quality. Is fire in your belly, is passion good or bad? It depends. If it creates rage, it's bad. If it makes you incredibly devoted and passionate, then it's a fantastic quality. So all these qualities, the Piazetna talks about this in the Chovas Midim. qualities are neither good or bad. They're all neutral. It's all a question of what midah, what measure they go in the pot. Is jealousy good or bad? Jealousy or envy of my neighbor feeling that I don't have what I deserve, not wanting my neighbor to have it, thinking I deserve it more, that's bad. But saying, look at their marriage or their health or look at their religious ambition, and I want that, I, I, I want that too, and that motivates and inspires me to pursue it, then it's good. Take any quality, and it could be good or bad, it's all a question of what measure. There are two exceptions, which are categorically bad, they don't belong in any measure. Anyone know what those two are? Arrogance and... Anger. Both the Rambam and the Ramban both write, arrogance and anger don't belong in any measure because they are, they are destructive qualities. There's nothing constructive about them. There's nothing constructive about arrogance. A person has to be exceedingly humble. 
And there's nothing constructive about anger. Anger is a pure emotion with no intellectual component to it. It's just giving into an emotion. They've done brain studies of a person who in a moment, I always wonder, like someone starts to get angry and they say, hold on, let me hook you up to the MRI machine. So I never, or maybe they make you angry inside the MRI machine and they show you pictures of like, you know, whatever, I won't even say. So, and what do the MRI studies show? That when a person gets angry, the blood flows from the human part of the brain to the animal fight or flight part of the brain. When we get angry, we lose our humanity and we sabotage our own success and we have no judgment and we make mistakes and we say stupid things and we hurt our own interests when we get angry. So anger does not belong in any measure. Anger is a negative, purely negative quality. So what does the Rambam say? That's what, back to the, the Revolve, he's quoting it from the Ramchal. Laharos kas him. Sometimes in order to be emphatic, sometimes in order to communicate a point, you have to not give in to anger, but you have to exhibit anger. Your child runs into the middle of the street, you can't calmly say, sweetie, it's a bad idea. There are things called cars and they're gonna run you over and then you're gonna die. That's not gonna impress upon the child what needs to be impressed upon the child. You've gotta lose your, your mind. You've gotta exhibit like you've lost your mind. Inside, calm, cool, collect. You're strategically acting angry to communicate a message, but you can never be angry. You can never indulge anger. You can never give in to anger. So, yesh laharos kas hapanim, kas chitzoni. Exhibit anger on the outside, but never ever indulge or feel it on the inside. Take two breaths, ask yourself, will this matter a year from now? Whatever it is you're anger about. A teacher trying to keep order in the class may smack the desk, may demand the students be quiet. They're not really angry inside, they're exhibiting anger. That is an enormous undertaking. Says Revolba to conquer that instinct, to conquer that indulgence in anger is difficult, is enormously difficult, because that's exactly how anger works. It makes us not think. It's in, insidious, insipidous. It, it conquers, instead of saying, think what's the right thing to do now in this moment? How should you react? What will get the desired result? What will leave a negative memory? What's the right thing to do? What anger does is it shuts down your brain. You have an enormous virus that just shuts down your brain, and the anger takes over. And the only way to get back is to not let the anger kick in to begin with. Because once it shuts down your brain and you stop saying, hmm, will this get the desired goal? Will this achieve what I want? What will the aftermath look like? What will be the unintended consequences? Who will be the casualties of the anger I'm about to exhibit? We don't think any of that through. If we did, we would never give in to the anger. And that's how anger gets us. So the answer is to capture and to catch and to conquer that anger even before it kicks in. I think it's um, Revelio Lopian who used to um, have a, an anger hat somewhere in a closet. And if he felt getting angry at his uh, children or he was about to get angry, he had made a commitment. He would only get angry when he put on his angry hat. So what would happen is something would, would make him lose his cool and he'd go to the closet and he'd start looking and he'd ask his wife, have you seen my angry hat? It was in this closet and it was in the back of that closet. And by the time he put that angry hat on, he realized, in a year from now, this won't matter. And you know what? It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be addressed, but it won't be constructive to deal with it with anger. 
So sleep on it, send the email the next day, make the phone call the next day, react the next day, see how you feel the next day and whether it's really that important and whether you really think anger matters. So this is really, 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 really difficult. See, the problem of Moshe's anger, Moshe doesn't get angry the way we get angry. Right? Moshe didn't get angry because they didn't bring the plate to the sink and it was left on the table. Moshe's anger was Kodesh HaKadoshim anger. He got angry in defending God. He got angry on behalf of God. We might think Kodesh HaKadoshim anger is okay for us. I'm angry fighting BDS. I'm angry standing up for Israel. I'm angry because someone blasphemed God. I'm angry because they make a chil Hashem saying Judaism doesn't believe in vaccination. I'm angry in the name of God, Kodesh HaKadoshim anger. Even that's not good. You can exhibit on the outside strategic anger, but it can't be indulging in the emotion of anger. The emotion of anger has no place whatsoever. Says Revolba, and this is gutsy to say, you have to be Revolba to say this, when Moshe Rabbeinu lost his cool with the people, and he said, yeah, you want water? You want us to draw water out of this rock? And he smacked the rock, says Revolba, in that moment when he gave in to the anger, anger creates a lapse in sanity and a lapse in theology. And when Moshe got into the anger, he was denying Hashem in that moment. It was a, a little blip, a little, a tiny little, a little crash of Amuna that for us would not be even noticeable, but for Moshe Rabbeinu was catastrophic because he's Moshe Rabbeinu. Because what he should have said is, this incorrigible, miserable people, they've been destroying me. I've done nothing but good for them. And here they are, and, and now they're complaining. Look what God did for them. Look what we've done for them. And now they're just complaining about thirst. But instead of saying, okay, that's what Hashem wants. I've got to deal with it. That's what's meant to be. He lost his cool and he got angry. And in that anger was a lapse of emunah. It was so small, so negligible, that only Hashem could notice it. And Hashem held them accountable, took them to task for it. Moshe should have remained calm, cool, and collect even in that moment. So what Revolba is developing is this idea based on the morale that anger is the barometer. Anger is the thermometer. Anger is what we use to measure where our Amunah is at. If I find myself getting angry at situations, if I find myself getting frustrated, if I find myself losing my cool at people, at nature, at things, then there's a, there's a fault in my, there's a deficiency in my amuna. There's a virus in my amuna. Because a person who really is a ma'amin, and again, I know we're describing a very high level. Don't beat yourself up if you get frustrated later today. It's a very, very, very high level. But a person who's at that high level of amuna and bitachon, we don't lose our, the person doesn't lose their cool. We should strive not to lose our cool. Because you just roll with the punches. Whatever happens was meant to be. It's from Hashem. He's running the world. He's in charge. He's the master puppeteer. And we are just pawns in this world. We take initiative. We do our effort. We try to do everything we can in every situation. But when we've exhausted all of our human initiative, when we've exhausted all of our effort, we must concede and forfeit and stop and say, I've done everything I can. And now the rest is up to Hashem. I don't know why. I may never know why. But it is what it's meant to be. It doesn't mean when something hurts, you don't cry. It doesn't mean when something hurts, you don't scream, ouch. Kodesh Baruch Hu doesn't expect you 
if you bang your head on the counter, how could you yell, ouch, where was your amuna? You were meant to bang your head. It hurts, you yell, ouch. There are physical pains, we yell, ouch. There are emotional pains, we yell, ouch. There are spiritual pains, and we yell, ouch. There's nothing wrong with yelling when something hurts. There's nothing wrong with shedding a tear. There's nothing wrong with feeling those pains. But within that pain, to realize, for whatever reason, I was meant to bang my head. For whatever reason, this was what was meant to be. I do everything I can, and then I concede, and I stop, and I accept, and I realize with the moon and bitachon. And that's, that's what gets us through the day. In other words, realize that Hashem is not asking this of us as, as something which makes it harder. It's something which is meant to make it easier. It's a source of support, and it's a source of comfort, and it's a source of courage. And as I always say, where would we be without it? What's the alternative? To think the universe is just a, a cruel place? To think that we are the objects of randomness and chance? The natural disasters and disease and evil people and evil choices just rule the world. Is that more comforting? Does that make it easier, more palatable? Not to me. That would make it more devastating. To me, the more comforting is to think and to realize and to accept and to try to with a sense of, of serenity that not everything has a reason or an explanation. And I can, I can lean into the pain of the painful situation and at the same time have the calm of realizing everything is from Hashem. Everything is from Hashem. I must have mentioned this before, but in between our um, second and our third children, Yechavet had a stillbirth. And it was a very, very painful time. It was a little boy and um, a very, very painful time. Thank God Hashem has blessed us beyond anything we could imagine or deserve with a beautiful and a big family. But at that time, it was incredibly painful. And afterwards, many stillbirths or miscarriages have an explanation of what went wrong or what didn't work out or what caused it. And here, there was absolutely no explanation. No explanation. Almost a full pregnancy and uh, sonograms of what looked like a healthy baby, should be, and then delivering a baby that wasn't alive. It was very, very, very painful. I share that not to invoke your sympathy. As I said, thank God we've been blessed a gazillion times over. I share it to tell you the following. When we were going through it, which at the time felt something that we can never ever recover from, was very painful. We, you know, we, we talked about the fact that there was no explanation for it. Does that make it harder? If we could only understand why, the umbilical cord snapped. It was around the baby's neck. It was this. It was a chromosomal pro. There, there was no explanation. No explanation. They did an analysis. They tried to find that there was no. And at some point, we realized, you no, know, maybe the no explanation is actually, in fact, makes it easier and more comforting, to realize it wasn't meant to be. Now, did we cry? It's painful. You don't want to leave the house. You don't want to see people. You don't know what will be in the future. It was a very difficult time. But when you are able to accept, um, it, was before, it was before you listened online to Shiram and it was before CDs, but someone gave us a tape. I remember listening to a tape of a great Rav who spoke about specifically this issue. And it was very comforting. And sometimes by not under knowing that you can't understand, enables you to stop trying to understand, which allows you to just accept. As long as you think that you can understand, you won't be satisfied not understanding. But the moment you realize you can't understand, so this was an example that we just understood we can't understand. So the moment that you realize you can't understand, you'll stop trying to understand. And the moment you stop trying to understand, you can experience real acceptance. You can experience real acceptance, and you're able to, I don't want to say move on, so the point I'm trying to make is that this notion of emunah and bitachon, of not getting angry or frustrated, doesn't mean that you don't cry. It doesn't mean that things don't hurt. It just means within those feelings, 
there's a peace or there's a serenity of realizing. This, I can accept that this is for a reason. At the same time, it hurts. At the same time, it hurts. So anger is that metric. It's that measure. Anger is the barometer that we use to determine how is my amuna. If I'm losing my cool and flying off the handle and getting frustrated, it's, it's a gut check. Amuna needs a little work. Got to get back to the Amunashir. Got to review the past Amunashir. Got to open up a safer on Amuna. Got to subscribe to four million opportunities out there these days for Amuna. And if, if I'm not frustrated or losing my cool, and I find that capacity in those moments to say, this hurts and I'm crying, but you know what? Things are for a reason. Then one should feel proud and feel good about the Amuna they're experiencing. So you see, based on this explanation of the Ma'aral, how far Amuna goes. Clinging and sticking to the Creator of the world brings you, Simcha, I'll translate for our purposes now, not just joy, but serenity. Because sometimes even clinging to Hashem doesn't bring you Simcha at moments of pain. But it, it helps you overcome the urge for anger. Dveikos, right? We talked last week. Dveikos, devek, glue. Hashem says, stick with me. I've got your back. Know that I've got your back. And if, if you live life knowing that God has your back, you're not going to get angry. Pure emuna, emuna lived with purity, creates a result that, that nothing else can influence your heart. The person who believes lives with clinging to Hashem and is happy with Hashem in every scenario and in every circumstance and realizes that nothing can break my love for Hashem. Right? The child, it's actually very counterintuitive, it's almost paradoxical. When you discipline children, they love you more. When you don't discipline children, they love you less. I find it's not as true with older children, but with, when, your children, when your children are younger, there's an amazing thing. If you, if you have to discipline a child, you put them in time out, you take away some toy or some device and you discipline the young child, when they come out, they become very clingy to you. They're, I would think that like, they wouldn't talk to you. You just put me in time out, you just took away my device, you just took away my toy. Like, I'm going to give you the cold shoulder, the four, five, six, seven-year-old. But it's the opposite. They start clinging to you. They start hanging around. They start being more affectionate to you, at least for a little bit. Because subconsciously, subliminally, they know the fact that you've disciplined means you love them. It means you love them. But as a child gets older and they can flirt with really dangerous boundaries and you don't stop them and you don't discipline them, you don't hold them accountable, where are their parents who are supposed to protect them for when they're pushing the limits? So the child who's undisciplined actually feels unloved. So it's very, very paradoxical, but I think we can identify with it, we can relate to it in our parenting. And it's true in Hashem's relationship with us too. Is sometimes when we feel Hashem is involved, something extraordinary happens in our life, good or even sometimes bad. But that's Hashem in our life, sort of disciplining and interacting with us. And in a paradoxical or counterintuitive way, it could make us feel more drawn to Him, more clingy, want to be more affectionate. The same way that if we can exercise and grow that amuna muscle inside us, it can help us overcome anger, it also can help us overcome sadness. Now I want to be very clear, and I always make sure to give this disclaimer, we're not talking about a clinical depression. Somebody who's suffering a chemical clinical depression, 
it's not like studying Amuna will make it go away. I want to be very clear about that. I think there are rabbis or teachers, men and women, who are um, make a mistake and do a disservice when they preach about like Amuna can help you overcome depression. A person who's struggling with real depression needs to see a therapist, a doctor, sometimes needs medicine, real therapy. Amuna is part of it. Amuna can be very helpful in it, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the clinical. I'm talking about the rest of the Jewish people who walk around sad and somber and anxious and worried and fabissina <coughs> all day. Not clinically, not to the level of clinically, just to the level of genetically. So to the rest of us at that level, the way to overcome that sadness is amuna. is amuna. First of all, it's what we talked about last Shabbos, it's scope and perspective. Like there's so many people I interact with in life, I want to take them on a walk through the ICU of the hospital. I want to take them on a walk through the soup kitchen or the Tomchei Shabbos uh, distribution center. I want to take them on a walk through whatever and realize these are your problems. You are so lucky. You are so blessed to have these problems. First world problems. Great first world problems. Amazing problems. So one of the ways that we overcome that sense of sadness or of frustration or of fear, of fear, of anxiety, of doubt, of worry, is working on this emuna. Emuna is the antidote to it all. Emuna is the response, it's the recipe, it's the formula, it's the prescription for it all. With increased emuna is increased serenity, happiness, balance, joy, health. With decreased emuna is increased envy, jealousy, anger, frustration, doubt, anxiety. So it's like you just put those two things up. Which one do you want? Which lifestyle do you want? Which is the life that you want? You now know what you need to do to get there. Paint that two pictures. Anxiety, doubt, worry, envy, jealousy, lust, honor, or serenity, peace, happiness, calm. Which one do you want? The choice is yours. It's in our hands. The more we work on our amuna. But amuna doesn't happen passively. It's lovely that you all come to this year. I'm honored, I'm flattered, I'm grateful, otherwise I'd be sitting here by myself. <laughs> it's great you come here. But amuna is not passive, and I'm speaking to myself now. Amuna doesn't come because I'm such a, a big kanakar I give this year. Amuna comes because in those moments you flex that Amuna muscle. You're about to lose your cool. Amuna comes because we help one another. We reinforce one another. We stop one another. Right? As much as I made the joke about when Yocheva texted me, will this matter a year from now? I'm grateful. We should be grateful to have partners in life, be it family, be it friends, be it neighbors, who stop us and they put things in perspective and they remind us, are you flexing that Amuna muscle? If you feel that Hashem were here, would you feel that way? Will this matter a year from now? Is this the best strategic way to deal with the situation? Will it get you to the results you want or will it create casualties and unintended consequences? So surrounding ourselves with people and creating this network of, of emuna, of people living with emuna and bitachon, and being able to achieve that lifestyle and that life that we all crave, that we all want, frankly, that we all deserve, that Hashem has there waiting for us. It doesn't mean the painful moments won't happen. It doesn't mean we won't cry. It doesn't mean we won't be sad but it means that we can overcome them and get back to that place of serenity, of peace, and of the happiness that we're capable of and that we deserve as long as we realize something frustrating just happened. It was meant to be. I got shut out of a class. I missed the flight. I was, uh, the beach was closed. I couldn't find the parking. The person stood me up. The housekeeper put the milchik thing in the fleshik dishwasher. <laughs> the child dropped the thing and it smattered into a million pieces. The person disappointed me and behaved in a way that really hurt. No matter what, I realize with Amuna, I hold the person accountable, I speak calmly, I address the situation, but I constantly realize 
I'm not in control, I'm not the center of the universe, it's not about me. There's something bigger, there's something higher. He's in control and whatever's happening is meant to be. And when it does, then we can live that life. And as we go into the holiday of Shavuos and when we have a Kabbalah Satorah, once again, not commemorating something from long ago, but re-experiencing it today in the present. Again, if we accept the Torah for Makabal the Torah, in, in genuinely, sincerely, then it helps position us to that Amuna. Because we realize Kabbalah Satorah is not just adherence to a set of laws. Kabbalah Satorah is to a value system, it's to a set of ideals, it's to a worldview and a perspective. It's a commitment and a pledge to live life through a filter, through a certain prism, how I will interpret all that is happening. And when I do, it makes me stronger, not weaker. Amuna doesn't mean I forfeit my autonomy so I'm weaker. Amuna means I'm stronger to believe and I'm stronger to have faith. It strengthens, it supports, it holds us up and it brings us the happiness and serenity we want. Have a fantastic day.